Bill Langworthy makes reality TV shows. He was one of the producers of The Hills. And he says that he's always been surprised, even after doing this for years, at how people end up doing things on television they would never do in real life, throwing themselves into the part so completely they even confuse themselves. I mean, we literally shot scenes before um, the husband and wife. And midway through the scene, the wife turns to me and says, hold on a second, is this for the show or are we really fighting right now? And I couldn't answer. So Bill never totally got why so many people would let themselves do so many embarrassing things on camera that they would never do normally. And I would always say, you know, gosh, if I were on one of these shows, if I were in this situation, you know, I would just handle myself so differently. And after years of being in jobs like this and thinking all that, he went to a Dodgers game. And I was there with my ex-girlfriend's best friend. And all you need to know, it's my ex-girlfriend's best friend. This is a girl that I cannot kiss under... Any circumstances, there are just so many rules against that. And uh, this guy comes around whose job it is to find people to go on the kiss cam, which is when they put the camera on you. Oh, and it shows up on like the Jumbotron for the stadium to see. Yeah, exactly. And so we were also there with uh, two of our friends who were married. And so they signed up that, yeah, like we're going to come back later in the game. We'll put the camera on you guys. You guys will kiss and everyone will see it on the, on the Jumbotron. And they'll cheer. Yeah. And sort of realized now that that guy and I have exactly the same profession, right? Which is like we try and find strangers to do embarrassing things on camera. But at the time, it, you know, none of that's mm-hmm. registering with me. And um, so several innings later and several beer runs later, we've managed to switch seats. And of course, that's how they do it is by what seat you're in. They don't, you know, 50,000 people, you don't just say, yeah, it's the tall guy with brown hair. So the kiss cam comes around, and instead of being pointed at the married couple, it's pointing at me and my ex-girlfriend's best friend. Because now you're in those seats. Exactly. And so, I mean, I have a producer who's looking at me. I expect something of you. Uh, The stadium is literally, you know, screaming at us. Five seconds earlier, I would have promised you, under no circumstances, (laughs) would I ever kiss this woman. And I leaned over and kissed her on the lips. He knew he didn't have to kiss her. There'd be no penalty. There was no contract. No money had changed hands. That didn't even cross my mind. Not doing it was not an option. You know, you couldn't have paid me a million dollars to do it, but, you know, I was on camera. I had to do it. Yeah, but that makes no sense. You, of all people, know that you don't have to do it. I certainly would have told you that, you know, right ahead of time. But I, um, yeah, I just got this feeling like that I was letting everybody down. Um, I was letting the producer down, you know, that I was letting the audience down. 50,000 people were looking at the Jumbotron. They wanted one thing and one thing only. I, I realized, I guess I'm just not that much different than the people that I put on TV. But a day on a radio program, people who are driven to act very differently than who they really are, flipping their personalities, completely doing the exact opposite of what they normally do, You only go that far if there are very powerful reasons to do it. In Act 1, it is somebody doing this for money. In Act 2, it's somebody doing it for love. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act 1, the audacity of Luis Ortiz. Usually, when you play a part, the expectations are pretty clear. There are lines, there's a script, there's a storyline you follow. 
So when you're on the kiss cam, you kiss. When you're Hamlet, you stress out. You know what you're on stage to do. Our first story today is about a man who found himself in a part with huge expectations and no script whatsoever. He had to make it up as he went along. It comes to us from filmmaker Ryan Murdoch, a warning to listeners that this is a story that's partly about race and a racial slur gets used. 2008 was a hard year for Luis Ortiz. He was living in the Bronx, but he lost his job as a phone technician for Verizon over a year earlier. So he was collecting workers' comp and playing in pool tournaments for extra spending money. But then, things started to change. Uh, I think it was like August 08. People were like, oh, dude, you made the front page. I'm like, what? I don't know what the hell people are talking about. So I look at the page, uh, you know, Daily News, I believe it was, and there's this dude with big ears. <laughs> Just smiling. Uh, you know, he's running against Hillary or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I don't really get it. I think it's the big ear thing. Uh, three weeks went by of those jokes. Lewis is a Puerto Rican guy in his late 30s. He describes himself as an occasional voter, and he hadn't really been following the election. Then, at some point, Lewis went to his usual bar, the Williamsbridge Tavern, to shoot some pool. Pat DeBellis was tending bar that day. Lewis sat down and asked for a Corona. I just mentioned it to him. I said, uh, you know, did everybody ever tell you you look like uh, this guy that's running for the president? And I said, yeah, who, this dude Obama? And he goes, yeah, you really look like him. And he said, yeah, 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 you know, they, they sort of like blew it off, you know. I'm like, I don't see it, dude. And I said, no, no, really, you, you really do, you know. And he says, nah, I don't know. I said, nah, I'm telling you. I said, you go home and you shave off that goatee and, and, and mustache. I'm like, uh-uh, I ain't taking this off. Ever since he'd been in the Army, Lewis had had facial hair. For more than a decade, it had been the same. Full mustache, full goatee. He never would have dreamt of taking it off. But then, Pat brought up something no one else had. I told him, I said, you know, you, you can make money. This guy, if this guy does become the president, I said, it's a tremendous opportunity for you to make money if you want to go in that direction. You know, first black man to be the president of the United States. I said, this is, this is powerful. And I'm thinking, hey, cha-ching, I need money right now. I'm unemployed for, you know, for a whole year. So I start listening to the dude, listening to the dude. I said, look, I'll tell you what, you go home. If you're willing to shave your mustache and your goatee, put on a white shirt, Put on a tie, look in the mirror. If you don't think you look like this guy, I said, then just grow your mustache and your goatee back. Take the shot, go see. So Lewis walked a few blocks back to his one bedroom apartment, found the clippers, found the razor, and got busy. Once I took it all off, I looked at myself, put the aftershave on, looked at myself in the mirror, and I was like, holy you know? It was, it was just wow, wow, wow. I can't believe this, I can't believe this, holy what the Everything, all the, all the holy whatevers, everything was there, everything, all at once. And it was a good feeling, because, you know, being broke, unemployed for a whole year, I, I, hypothetically, I saw dollar signs all in the mirror, all around my face, all around everywhere. put on a suit. I didn't even have a suit. I put a suit top. I had a jacket, some bullshit shirt, a uh, rinky-dink tie, and I went right back out with the shorts that I had left the bar with. So I leave the house with a suit top and shorts and sandals on the bottom. 
walk back into the bar and say, hey, guys, what do you think? And everybody's jaw dropped. Like, everybody's screaming like, yo, dude, are you serious? You look just like this dude. I, I, said, to, I said to Lewis, I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. I said, there's like maybe three people in the country that look like him. And he's one of them in this whole country. You really, you really had to look at it long and hard to figure out who was who. It's just striking. If you just like gave it a, a quick glance, dead ringer, it's like twin brother. Twin brother is actually a good way of explaining just how much Luis Ortiz really does look like Barack Obama. I've been filming Luis for months, working on a movie about him, and I've looked at his face for hours on end. I've studied the details. From certain angles, the resemblance is hard to believe. His right side, slightly from above at 45 degrees, perfect. His left side, slightly from below, is just as good. From those directions, you'd have to take your time to tell him and Obama apart. Also, from behind, you know, the ears. There's even details that seem impossible. The hairlines are the same. Lewis, just like Obama, has a mole next to his nose. On Lewis, it's just on the opposite side. If he smiles, Lewis gets that crinkly-eyed thing that Obama gets. And when he gets serious, he does that chin-up squinty thing, too. But it's not perfect. The resemblance is at the level of maybe a double-take. I've seen people wonder aloud, is that him? And reach for their cameras before they realize it's not. Up close, in person, one second, he's Obama. The next, he's obviously Lewis. Then he's Obama, then he's Lewis. It's weird. But back to 2008, back to the Bronx, back to the bar, back to Pat. And he said, I'm telling you, Lou, you got something here. And I'm like, yeah, I could see, but... What do I got and how do I, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not, how do I do this? What am I, whose door am I knocking on, you know? And he just told me, he's like, first things first, you need headshots. So I was like, what's a headshot? Pat DeBellis, the bartender, had what he described to Lewis as a little experience in the business, meaning show business. He'd been an extra, done some modeling, a commercial or two. Pat immediately set about mapping a plan for Lewis, a plan that, to Lewis, sounded far-fetched. Keep in mind, this was a rough time in Lewis's life. Again, he'd been fired from a job he'd had for more than a decade. He was in the middle of a lawsuit, trying to get his job back. His daughter had just returned home after a nasty custody battle with the parents of his late wife, Lewis's late wife, who died of diabetes several years before. So there he is, sitting across the bar from this guy he barely knows, who's basically telling him he'd hit the jackpot, that his life could be totally different if he just put in a little money up front. He was telling me numbers, like 200 for headshots, 200 for a suit, and, you know, you got to go here and there. And I had my regular, normal, everyday life problems, and I was very reluctant, like, dude, like, to take the few bucks that I had to, to go and throw a Hail Mary up. At least I thought it was a Hail Mary. Lewis had his doubts, but he scraped together money for a photo shoot and borrowed money to buy a suit, a new one, one with pants. He got a list of agents, enlisted some friends, and from the back of the bar, they stuffed envelope after envelope with resumes and headshots. 
At home, Lewis was experimenting with what he started calling the look, practicing in the mirror, then more trips to the bar. It wasn't until sometime in late September that he decided to take it public in a big way, to take it for a real test run. Yeah, I had got I had gotten uh, an invite to a Yankee game, and they were like, we got an extra bleach to see. I'm like, all right, great. This was a historic day for the Bronx. It was the last game to be played in the old Yankee Stadium, and the park was sold out, filled to capacity. Went into the stadium and went into the bleachers with the suit on. I told the guys I was with, a bunch of retired cops, a couple of telephone guys. I'm like, yo, dude, this is a real crazy look. You guys are really going to protect me, right? And they're like, oh, we got you, we got you. I'm like, okay. Once we get up there, we're all fun and games. They start playing around like, hey, watch it. We got Obama coming through. We got Obama coming through. And then once people from further away started noticing the commotion that was happening, more people started looking. The more people that start looking, the more people that start looking. (laughs) So everybody's looking from close to far to... You know, before you know it, Jumbotron. Everybody's like, hey, you on the Jumbotron. And I'm like, are you serious? So I'm like, let me go with it. I start waving at people and people start going nuts. And this is September, you know, a month and a half or whatever before election time. Then, you know, Obama had a lot of hype, you know. And it was just exciting. Is the game actually happening at this point? Is there, are there, is there baseball happening? Baseball is happening, but a lot of fans are lining up to come take pictures with me. Like, people were lining up. Can I get a picture? People were bringing me their babies to kiss their babies and take pictures with their babies. I mean, it was just crazy. It was like, oh my God, you feel like a star, you know? You feel, in some weird way, you feel like the president, (laughs) you know? And I think I'm like, damn, how must he feel, you know? How must he feel if I'm feeling like this? And I'm not even the real dude. Imagine how he feels whenever he goes and people are just going crazy over him. On election night, Lewis, who three months earlier hadn't even heard of Obama, was in the Bronx watching the votes come in, like a man with a lottery ticket, watching the winning numbers on TV. At some point, the race hadn't been called, but he put on his suit and headed out of the Bronx. We start uh, driving towards Manhattan to hook up with some friends, me and me and this kid, Benny. And we're like, yo, I want to be downtown when this whole thing goes down. My mother's like, Bendicion, please be safe, please be safe. So I start heading down, and all of a sudden, I pull up at a gas station, and I hear gunshots. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh my God, let's get back in the car. And then I hear people screaming. And I'm like, nobody got shot. People are celebrating. So I turn on the radio. And I just hear people screaming, gunshots, people screaming out the window everywhere. I was in the South Bronx, mind you. So that's when I knew he won. And I'm like, I'm in. 
I am so in. I didn't know where I was going to end up. I didn't know if I was going to make a ton of money or a little bit of money. But everybody's celebrating Obama, you know? It's like everybody's celebrating Obama. So everywhere I walked in with a suit, it was my party. <laughs> it was my party everywhere I went. And it's, it's a pretty crazy feeling, you know? This could really just turn somebody's life upside down. Like, it turned my life right side up. <laughs> you know, my life was already upside down. This is sound from Washington Square Park, Lewis's last stop on election night. He got there around 2 or 3 in the morning, and the crowd was still celebrating. Ever since his big day at the Yankees game, Lewis had adopted a sort of homespun guerrilla marketing strategy. Mostly, it consisted of put on a suit, find a place with a lot of people, and just show up. These appearances were for free. Lewis got nothing. But he was hoping, eventually, they would turn into money. In just a few minutes of tape from election night, one after another, people stopped Lewis. They giggle and point. They use words like awesome and amazing. And they're left with this weird contact high, like they almost met Obama. And they want a picture so they can fool their friends. One astonished lady asks him, what's your name, Obama? At one point, the crowd mobbed Lewis and actually picked him up, carrying him through the air, chanting, Barack Obama, Barack Obama. Barack Obama was now President Obama, and Lewis started getting serious. He signed on with an agent, then two. And to get gigs, one of his agents asked Lewis to make a pitch tape, something to send out to people who might hire him. My name is Lewis Ortiz. I'm a 38-year-old Puerto Rican-American who landed the look of a lifetime. For the tape, Lewis wrote the script himself and filmed it in a stairwell. It's cheap and lo-fi, Lewis has his suit on, and he's trying hard, but it's awkward. He's not sure what he's supposed to be doing. At one moment, he turns from side to side in the empty stairwell, waving at imaginary crowds. And then he makes his best attempt at an Obama impression. Thank you. At this defining moment, change has come to America. With that said, change has also come to my life in a monumental way. And this brings us to Lewis's biggest problem. He can't seem to manage a convincing Obama impression for more than a thank you or two. Lewis looks more like Obama than any impersonator I've ever seen. But there's a key difference between a look-alike and an impersonator. And that difference is huge in terms of money. The potential money Lewis could make doing this. I mean, maybe you've seen Reggie Brown or Fred Armisen, guys who do President Obama on late-night TV a lot. They look way less like Obama than Lewis, but the impression carries it. But Lewis's agent sent out his pitch tape anyway, and pretty soon he got a call. He landed an audition for HBO for Flight of the Concords. Yeah, Flight of the Concords. I'm like, what the hell is that? I never heard of Flight of the Concords. Flight of the Concords was a hipster comedy about a band from New Zealand. Not really something Lewis would watch. But soon he was in his suit waiting for the producers to call him in. I'm sitting there at the audition place. They were like, oh yeah, uh, just wait right here. I'm sitting there, and I see this other dude walking in a suit. He was like a light-skinned black dude. 
And I'm matter of fact, when that dude walked in, I'm like, please don't let some other dude walk in here looking more like Obama than I do. <laughs> I looked at him, he looked at me, and he walked right out. He walked right out. Please put your hands together, the 44th President of the United States. The flight of the Concords role was actually perfect for Lewis because they weren't looking for someone to play Obama. They were looking for someone to play an Obama impersonator. In the show, season two, episode seven, if you're curious, Lewis doesn't appear until the final scene. Here, the joke is that the prime minister of New Zealand thinks he's meeting Obama, but everyone else knows it's not really the president. It's Lewis, who, in a way, is sort of playing himself. Oh yeah, I met him back at the agency. I also do Usher and sometimes Will Smith. The agency, what's he talking about, Murray? Uh, CIA. I mean, your first job to be HBO <laughs> at that point, I said, wow, I mean, I felt like accomplished right there. I felt like like I did something, you know? Like, like I really finally did something. You know, I want to put my daughter to college and I want to pay all the bills at home, I want to get my girl out of debt, I want to buy a house for my mom. You know, all that. Yeah, you think about all that. You think about all of it and living life, not just surviving like I have been for so many years. So it felt more, it felt within reach. I thought that it was, that this could lead to something really big or something, but not the way it actually did. Day by day, he started picking up more work doing Obama. Gradually, it started to feel less like a string of uncertain events, and more like one thing was leading to another. Lewis even started calling himself the Porter Rock Barack. Before he knew it, he was booking high-profile jobs overseas. There was a big-budget movie in Japan, a comedy where Lewis, as Obama, negotiates a fictional peace treaty. There was Australia, where Lewis was cast as the lead singer of a band, a supergroup of Nobel Peace Prize impersonators called the Nobel Funk Off. Lewis as Obama and various other impersonators as bandmates, including Gogo Gandhi, Nelson the Mandela, Martin Luther the King. This group performed, at one point, for the real, actual Dalai Lama. If you heard that correctly, Lewis met the Dalai Lama. But Lewis's first taste of international work was in Korea, where a company flew him all the way to Seoul to shoot a commercial for a cable service called Skylife. The commercial was set to look just like the inauguration. Podium, teleprompters, Lewis in a dark winter coat, and a bunch of non-Asians who've been rounded up to sit in rows behind him. And that was how, in a 19-hour plane ride, Lewis went from being someone with a bunch of problems he needed help with to being someone who had people catering to his every need. For example, Lewis has MS. Most of the time it doesn't bother him, but he gets tired easy. In Korea, with the jet lag, the busy schedule... He was drained and exhausted, and he didn't know what to do about it. I actually found out 
that it was on them, that it was okay for me to go get a, one of those massages from the hotel. The Yatsu, uh, what do you call them? The massages that they start smacking up your back. What is that? Yatsu, uh, there you go. One of them massages. Man. Once I found that out, I was down there, I hit it at least twice. I tell you what, I was so in peace out there. Things were so clean out there. People were so humble. Uh, hospitality was incredible. You know, to be treated the way I was treated out there, to not see arguments in the street, to not see garbage, you know, and stuff like that coming from the Bronx where I'm from. It just sucked coming back. Coming back was like, am I really going back to the US? Like, After Korea, I wanted to move to South Korea. After Japan, I wanted to be in Japan for the rest of my life. After Australia, that's the latest one. I want to move to Australia. <laughs> it's like I feel like that every time I leave the States. Big jobs did come with big paychecks. The Japanese movie paid the most, $10,000. By the time all of this was in full swing, Lewis was making enough to pay off some bills and debts and do little things like take his girlfriend out to dinner. But the money also went quick. Lewis started investing in his new career. He enrolled in acting class, bought another suit, and got his teeth whitened. He even started flirting with the idea of having surgery to close a small gap between his two front teeth one of the little giveaways that sometimes ruins the Obama look. But even the big-ticket jobs weren't really enough to get Lewis out of the financial hole he was in, and they tended to be few and far between. Early on, Pat Tabellis, the bartender, had advised Lewis, in order to launch this whole new career, this Obama business, that Lewis should take any job. There was no telling what could lead to his big break. And it was advice Lewis took to heart. Most of the jobs were the small ones, emceeing award ceremonies, political picnics, union rallies, cameos on television. But there were also things that were even stranger, further off the expected path. I said, okay, rappers, pay me some money, I'm going to be in the video, I'm going to play the president. Here's the full premise of the music video Lewis was hired to be in. President Obama's helicopter gets shot down, and he's captured and tortured by Arab terrorists. Then, the rappers... Waka Flocka Flame in French Montana, show up in full camo, guns blazing, and rescue him. Because Lewis looks so much like the president, the footage from this shoot is very weird to watch. Take after take, Lewis is tied up in a chair. There's fake blood all over his shirt. One guy in Arab clothing is pressing a knife to his throat. Another guy is holding a taser and a blowtorch a few inches from his arm. The whole time this is going on, the director is yelling at Lewis, but he's not calling him Lewis. He's calling him Barack. It's look at me, Barack. Get mad, Barack. And struggle, struggle, guys. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Look towards me, Barack. 
Is there a type of job that you would turn down because you just wouldn't want to use the president's, like, you know, lend the president's image to something? Uh, That's my producer, Ben Calhoun, asking that question. A, a job that I would turn down. Lewis stumbled around for over a minute. Uh, a minute and 22 seconds, actually. I would definitely turn down a few jobs. Before finally telling us the one job that crossed the line for him. Well, you know, people people want me to do... I've had offers to uh, to do pornos. Like uh, Barack Obama. Uh, Nailin Palin. Uh, can't see myself doing all that craziness. The jobs Lewis felt most conflicted about, though, are not the strange things he was asked to do on camera. It was the live appearances. And he did a lot of them. Actually, a lot of the small jobs were ones in which Lewis was paid just a little money to show up, in person, in a suit for a couple hours. Kind of like having a living cardboard cutout of the president to take pictures with. These were some of the firemen. These were two of the friendly ones. So those guys were nice to you. Yeah, a couple, you know, a couple of guys were nice, but it was just so many that weren't. <laughs> Lewis showed me pictures from one of these jobs. And it was that same the owner of a bar named Rathbones had hired him to show up and, and take some pictures on St. Patrick's Day. The bar was a big hangout for New York firefighters, and there were lots of them there that day. Lewis says he figured they'd done a parade because many were wearing FDNY shirts. There's video of all this. According to Lewis, the crowd was a few beers into their day, and they were pretty much hostile from the start. On the video, as Lewis walks in, you can hear a guy say something about black Irish. Lewis looks uncomfortable, nervous. He stands with his back against the wall and attempts a presidential wave and smile. Somebody yells, beat it, and then the crowd starts to boo. Here the video suddenly cuts out. Lewis says what followed was an hour of people throwing things at him, shoving him, and shouting. You're the worst f***ing president. You f***ing suck. F***ing nigger. Wow. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, all kinds of horrible things. It was bad. At one point, Lewis was behind the bar serving beers, but things seemed a little safer with some distance between him and the crowd. I had somebody, they got on the bar, and they saw me when I started approaching the bar, and he tried to actually grab my head, like, you know, trying to do some motion like that. By motion like that, Lewis means that the guy tried to shove Lewis's face into his crotch. And I just backed up, and I held myself so much from just knocking that dude out. I didn't want to let the Bronx come out of me and just punch somebody in the face, you know, because I'm doing this thing like I'm the president, so I have to compose myself, <laughs> you know? Nobody's gonna scream the N-word to Obama. Nobody's, nobody's gonna have the balls to do that, but they will have the balls, oh, look at that dude, he looks like Obama. Eh, you look like that N-word. Like, wait a second, I gotta hear the for him, you know? 
I've lived in New York City all my life. I know how crazy people in New York are, you know? I've never had to experience the racism like I ra- like I face it now, you know? It oozes out of people's skins now when they see my, f- you know, when they see my face. At first, Lewis had friends from the phone company dress up like Secret Service with earpieces and sunglasses, just for dramatic effect. But after a few bad episodes, Lewis got genuinely scared for his safety. Before going out, he would tell his friends to stick close and be ready to actually protect him. What's it, who's the most belligerent person you've encountered with the whole Obama thing? Uh, the most. Hmm. Uh, weren't too many words said, but remember somebody looking at me, walking out drunk out of a bar, and I'm walking in, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, man, you're so lucky I'm drunk. And he just started pointing, like, like if he had a gun in his hand, you know, like, he's pointing at me, like, you suck. You know, and I, I didn't get called the N-word. I, I I didn't get cursed out, but just the fact that he was drunk, pointing his hand at me like you know if he had a gun, that 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 was just like unnerving. Like that that really bothered me. But even with the hecklers. Even when these jobs went badly, even when the jobs were hard to come by, the look was an escape for Lewis. This weird superpower that he could use any time he wanted. I've watched Lewis in front of a crowd of third graders in a school near his apartment in the Bronx, where they asked him to give a speech. Lewis was nervous, but when the kids saw him, they saw the leader of the free world, this historic figure. One girl couldn't stop crying. He originally began impersonating Obama for money, to make a few bucks. And it turned out to be so much more than that. You know, how do I explain this? When I first discovered this look, if I was home, down and out, and I felt down about anything, I'd throw on the suit, shave up, look at myself in the mirror, and I'd go somewhere. Hit downtown Manhattan, and now my attitude went from down here to up here now 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 it's up because people look at you when you see me in a suit they look at you and they're like oh wow dude do you know who you look like and I'm like I feel like a million bucks like I have no problems in the world I never want that moment to end and when it's all over and I have to go home and take off the suit that's when it's like ugh, back to my problems Unfortunately for Lewis, his problems got worse. Lewis's new career was tethered to Obama's, and as the president's first term wore on and his approval rating slid, the lookalike job slowly disappeared. Eventually, Lewis decided to put the Obama stuff on ice, go down to Florida and be with his daughter. Plan was he'd go there and wait for his job situation with the phone company 
with Verizon to sort itself out. He said he was looking forward to being Louis the phone guy again. I went to see him. My first day there, we went fishing in the fenced-in man-made pond outside his parents' apartment complex, and he explained to me his deal with Verizon. Lewis had been fired in late 2007. According to him, a string of events led to a heated argument with his boss. Lewis stormed out, closed the door pretty hard, kind of slammed it, and the window broke. Lewis was fired. He filed a wrongful termination lawsuit, and in late 2010, his case went to arbitration. If it went his way, he'd get thousands and thousands in back pay. My lawyer broke it down. It's pretty much a hands-down, hands-down case. You know. So what's your financial situation? Broke as a joke. I mean, you get Obama gigs here and there, but you know my deal. I'm waiting on these boys to pay me my retro pay from Verizon. His lawyer called in late November. When Lewis picked up, she didn't sound excited. Lewis asked, should I be sitting down? And she said, yeah. At that point, he knew. The arbitrator had sided with Verizon. Lewis was now empty-handed. No job back, no retro pay, not much of anything. My dad has been down here for like four months already. Like, probably more, never mind, like five, six, I don't know. But he's really cool. This is Lewis's daughter, Reyna. She's 15. A great basketball player, a serious student, funny, and just a really nice kid. Back when the Obama stuff heated up, and Lewis was traveling a lot, he sent Raina here to live with his parents, and they hadn't seen much of each other since. But now, the two of them could be a family again. Every day at 5.30 in the morning, Lewis would drive Raina to school, and at night, they'd hang out after she got home from basketball practice. Yes, yeah, it's kind of better. Like, he's just a more, he's a fun person to be around. That's what I like when he's down here. Lewis spent his days in Florida while Raina was at school, figuring out a plan to piece his life back together. He'd gone to a phone company in Florida, but they said they weren't hiring. At some point, he got in touch with his agent, who told him how successful other Obama impersonators had been, that there was still money to be made. With campaign season approaching, demand would probably be high. But his agent said he'd need what he was lacking the first time around, a better impression. Specifically, she said, work on the voice. So Lewis started watching Obama speeches on YouTube, listening to them on his iPod over and over, practicing the cadence, the timing, and the delivery. Every single American, gay, gay straight, straight, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, every single, every American, single American deserves to be treated equally in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of our society. It's a pretty simple proposition. Now... I don't have to tell you that uh, we have a ways to go in that struggle. As you can hear, Lewis really is getting better. And once again, the Obama stuff is starting to feel like Lewis's best and only option. But Lewis thinks New York is a better place to take another shot, to start getting Obama work again. And that means leaving Reyna. He told me the news like two days ago, or like three days ago, and kind of sucks. <laughs> Because I'm going to miss him. Did you tell him that? No. <laughs> I would never get that, like, emotional with him. I don't know. But I do feel it inside, for real. 
I wish he could just stay, like, but he says he has his work to do or whatever over there. So I guess not. I guess he can't stay. But whatever. I haven't seen him like four years and then he comes and then he just leaves again, but whatever. It doesn't bother me. You believe in that future. That's why you're working hard. That's why you're putting in long hours. You know that doing big things isn't easy, but you haven't given up. That's the spirit we've got to have right now. The way it's turned out, right now, both the president and Lewis are both looking for second chances, both looking back at the last three years, thinking about what they've accomplished and what they still need to do. Recently, Lewis was laying out to me his big plans for 2012. Whatever reservations Lewis has about leaving Reyna again, that's exactly what he's doing. He's doubling down on the whole Obama thing. And he's back in New York. He said he's hopeful. He's feeling good. At some point, I asked Lewis if he could somehow choose, choose between being a great, successful Obama impersonator or going back to being Louis the phone guy. If he could choose, which one would he pick? He hesitated, seemed to give it some real thought. And he told me, if he could be anyone, if it was totally up to him, He'd go back to his old life, working for Verizon. He'd be the phone guy. He'd be himself. Ryan Murdoch, he is still filming for his movie about Lewis. It is called The Audacity of Lewis Ortiz. He's looking for more funders on Kickstarter. His website, where you can see just how much Lewis looks like Obama, audacitythemovie.com Coming up, feigning interest in what your spouse is saying and how that can save your marriage. That is in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Play the Part, people faking who they are, pretending they are the opposite of their real personalities because they feel they have no other option. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Wife Lessons. Kristen uh, was a speech therapist at a school where she worked with some kids who had autism, some had Asperger's syndrome. It was kind of one of those things. It was We joked about it, the staff that I worked with, where we kept saying, like, oh, that's, you know, my husband, my significant other has Asperger's too. It, it kind of became this running joke because there is so many similarities between the neurotypical man <laughs> and then you take it a few steps forward and you have Asperger's. Not to trivialize how serious Asperger's can be, but the symptoms include uh, emotional distance, inflexibility, missing social cues. A couple's counselor once told me that every woman who hears about Asperger's for the first time thinks her husband has it. So anyway, so they had this joke at work about their husbands all having Asperger's. And then one day it occurred to Kristen, wait a second, maybe in her case, it was not a joke. After all, at the time, things were going pretty badly with her husband, Dave. They'd been best friends in high school, started dating in college. But once they were married and had two kids, they were in conflict a lot. Any little change in plans would set Dave off. Like they would plan to leave a party at 9 o'clock and Kristen wasn't ready to go until 9.15 and didn't seem like a big deal to her. Dave would throw what he would call a man tantrum and uh, stew about it, obsess about it, not speak to her for days or a week. 
And these incidents, she was frustrated with him. He felt misunderstood by her. It devastated them both, and it confused them. It stumped them. It really stumped them for years, five years. And then one day, she found this quiz online, this online quiz to help the parents of one of her students. And this quiz was supposed to test different disorders like autism and Asperger's. 150 questions, lots of them. Like, do you find it necessary to sit in the same seat all the time? Or do you dislike changes in routine? Lots of these questions reminded her of her husband. He remembers uh, what happened next this way. Things have been pretty chilly between them for a long time. It was around 8 o'clock at night. The kids had been put to bed. It was so quiet. Um, Kristen had made dinner. And she came up to me. And for the first time and as long as I could remember, out of the blue, she approached me and gave me this hug, a real warm just tender hug. And uh, and I said, oh, hello there, you know. <laughs> How are you doing? And, and she just looked up and she said, you know, when you're ready, why don't you come downstairs to my office? There's something I want to show you. So it comes down to the basement and Kristen starts administering this quiz to him. I remember him saying at the beginning of it, he's like, what is this, like a Cosmo quiz? <laughs> like, no, I'm not taking you down to the basement for a Cosmo quiz. But Because um... <laughs> that would be hot. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> We're not going there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and, and did you tell him this is going to be a quiz about whether or not you have Asperger's or you just start asking questions? No. No, no just I just asking started questions. asking him questions. And mm-hmm. um, as we were going, you know, as the questions got to be so familiar to him, he's like, what is this quiz? Like, how, did you write these questions? Are you, did you do this for me? The ones that really resonated with me were things like, um, do you um, find you have most success in, in social situations when you can script out possible conversations ahead of time? Um, even things like, do you sometimes feel tortured by the clothes you're wearing, itchy tags? shirt cuffs um you know do people often comment on your odd mannerisms and habits this was it was yes an emphatic yes to all of these things and then the questions started getting even you know just bizarre where i was like this must be a typo there was i remember there was one question about have you ever fantasized about making traps and I said, oh, that must be a typo. And he's like, no, I totally have. <laughs> Traps, <laughs> what are you talking about? So it was when we were starting getting those specific things. I'm like, geez, I am just missing this here. I, this has been in front of me for so long. And um, I needed this 150-question quiz in order to finally see, like, oh, okay, that explains a lot. And so, and so you get to the end, and, and then what do you say? Like, well, how do you break the news? Well, there's a at the very end, you just like calculate. And so when the quiz got done, before I hit calculate, I told him what it was. And, you know, he kind of he was like, oh, okay. So I'm like, are you ready to calculate? So I hit the button and it was a big old yes. (laughs) It was such a huge moment, sublime moment. It's it's a weird way to say it, but I almost felt as though I was present at my own birth, if that's a hmm. if that's a decent way of saying that. I mean, it was as if somebody had finally handed me a user manual for myself. You know, um, here's here's how you operate, and uh, if you read this manual, um, everything that was difficult in life before is going to be a lot easier now because it it makes sense and you can learn how to control certain things. Kristen found it just as comforting. 
All the things that seemed to be destroying their marriage, she could see now that they were not his fault. And she hadn't realized just how hard things were for him in everyday situations. So they went to a doctor and they got the diagnosis confirmed. David had Asperger's. Typically, people with Asperger's have trouble reading social cues. They have trouble interacting. They're usually obsessive in their routines or interests. And then, armed with this uh, diagnosis, Dave set about fixing whatever it was possible to fix. And he did this with the deep obsessiveness of a deeply obsessive person. He understood, okay, there's clearly a gap between his instincts and the way that other people acted. And he wanted to close that gap by imitating them. So he started keeping this list. Whenever he stumbled onto some kind of behavior that he wanted to change, any behavior that was causing friction between him and Kristen, he would write it down. For instance... It would really bother her when I, uh, when she would be singing along in the radio and she'd be in a good mood and happy and I would change the station mid-song. And uh, so she would say, like, are you kidding? You can't, you can't do that. So I would, I would write it down. I would say, okay, you know what? I really want to change things. So lest I forget, I'm going to put it, put it somewhere. So I'd write it down on a notepad. Don't change the radio station when she's singing along. Now, if that just seems like unbelievably basic, you can see why he and Kristen had been fighting for five years and why he needed a list. He started to call all these little scraps of paper that he was doing this on, he started to call it the Journal of Best Practices. Other items on the list, don't sneak up on her. Better to fold the laundry and put it away than only take what you need from the dryer. Give Kristen time to shower without crowding her. Uh, some others were, well, some of them were... Uh, were actually quite profound. Um, things like um, learn how to listen. I mean, that's a huge one. What do you um, do? Wait, wait, how do you operationalize that one? Well, learn how to listen. For example, she would maybe have a complaint about something that happened in her day. You know, somebody at work mm-hmm. was so annoying today. Um, or it's taking me so long to get to work, man, with all this traffic. And what what I would do is I would offer her a million solutions. Let's sit down. Let's map out this traffic route that you're taking. We can optimize, you know, travel time versus rush hour versus stoplights. And she would just stare at me like, are you kidding me? And just say, ultimately, no, I'm good. And just leave. And then I would feel hurt. Like, where are you going? If you didn't want a solution, why did you bring this up? Right. Well, what I didn't know and what she didn't know was I just needed to be told sometimes, Dave, look, I have some things on my mind. I don't need a solution. All I want you to do is, when I'm done talking, just nod your head and say, that must be rough. <laughs> so it literally, I could literally practice doing that. Now, sometimes I got it wrong. Like, she would come to me seeking a solution. This house is absolutely a disaster. You know, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't clean this up all by myself. And I would say, yeah, I totally hear you. That's got to be so rough. And then I would just, like, leave the room. <laughs> Kristen says that all of his life, Dave had gotten by by imitating the way people around him behaved. And he had a real talent for noticing little things that people did and then copying them. And now that really kicked in hard. So he was able to start learning how to, again, in quotes, look normal, look neurotypical by doing things like watching Late Show with David Letterman, listening to Howard Stern. Um, Really? Wait, wait, yeah. your, your husband learned to talk to other human beings by listening to Howard <laughs> Stern and watching David Letterman? He learned how to have um, small talk conversations, the flow wow. of conversations, when they were kind of going to change, mm-hmm. what it, what their facial expression might look like or their body language might look like when they're about to switch topics or kind of how to just go with the flow during a conversation. I had always listened to Howard Stern. 
And um, I love Howard. Right. So, so you know, as a Howard listener, it's engaging. Well, what I started keying in on was the way that Howard would get through a story, parse a story. You know, he's talking about going out and getting pancakes with his parents last weekend, and he'll he'll keep that up for 30, 45 minutes if he has to. He's able to take interruptions from the other people in the studio, from Robin, from Gary, from callers. And when he wants to be sincere, he'll lower his voice and he'll slow down, maybe much like what I'm doing right now, because that's kind of who I learned from was Howard. So I would take notes on how he did this, and then I would practice. Sometimes I got it right. Sometimes I, I got it way wrong. So Can if you give I me was, an example uh, of a time that it went way wrong? <laughs> I can give you lots of examples of those. Um, I think uh, trying to start some banter with one of the, the engineers in my lab, somebody that I never talked to about anything besides how our oscilloscopes work. Mm-hmm. So I would sit down and say things like, um, you know, so listen, uh, you know, what's doing over there? You, uh, you got anything going on, you know, sexually in your life? Anything going on in love life that... Uh, wait, wait, you actually did, you actually said this is somebody at work? Just to, just to see how they would react. And sometimes people would just start laughing and sometimes they would actually engage the conversation. And then other times they would just say like, are, you know, are you kidding me? So David's trying all these things to try to change his behavior. And overall, it works. The first thing that he notices is that there is an absence of resentment between him and Kristen. And things just get better and better. And then his problem is he's obsessive by nature. Like that's his whole diagnosis, right? And he starts wanting regular performance reviews from Kristen. He puts together these PowerPoint slides for these reviews. And a year and a half into this, she has had enough of the Journal of Best Practices. And she has to tell him, we have learned what we needed to learn from this. That's the point where... Um you know, we ordered out or something and he ate all the crab rangoon and I just kind of was like, oh, you ate all the crab rangoon and all of a sudden now that's a best practice. Um, so that's kind of where I set, I, <laughs> I stopped it and I said, you know what? <laughs> we don't have to work on this for the next three weeks. Just don't eat all the crab rangoon. Um, and so I had to explain to him, you know, people who are married still, I, it's, it's okay if I sigh and roll my eyes when you eat all the crab rangoon. Like that's okay best practices is done. We have the essentials. We're work, you know, the things that were <laughs> really difficult for us, we got, you know, leave the crab rangoon out of it. And that must have been hard for him. It was. That was one of the best practices that I gave him. I was like, here's your new best practice. Not everything is a best practice. And so I'm sure he went <laughs> oh and ran and wrote it down in his journal. Like, okay, not everything's a best practice. <laughs> David is still faking his way through things today. He listens to Kristen's problems at the end of the day, and he waits until it's time for him to say, that sounds hard, and then he says, that sounds hard, and it's gotten pretty comfortable. At some point in this process, it felt like it did become second nature. I can't, I can't claim that it's true empathy. Um, it's more intellect than it is, you know, just raw feeling, empathy and emotional response. Exactly. It's knowing versus feeling. I've achieved something that very much resembles empathy, and it's close enough for us. But wait, is that satisfying for her? I mean, I mean, if you say to her, like, God, that, that must be terrible for you, and you're not really empathizing, and she knows you're just saying it by rote because you've been trained to do it, is that actually satisfying to her? That's a really great point. I can now surmise, you know, using intellect, that 
yes, that must have been very trying for her. Whether that's satisfying to her, um, maybe it would come as no surprise. I hadn't really thought about it too much in those terms. (laughs) Maybe it's not exactly heartfelt (laughs) that, um, I don't know, I guess it works well enough for me. And that's kind of the question. If your spouse is pretending to feel certain things, is that just as good as them feeling those things? No. I, well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, as the wife, I really, I wanted him to have empathy. I wanted him to put my feelings first, you know, just in general. Um, there are times when I when I wish he truly understood, I think. But I, I did understand that that's just not how his brain was wired. Um I mean, of course, you want someone just to be able to magically do that, to read your mind. But that's not going to happen. I mean, that's every marriage where, you know, like, why won't he just do what I want him to do? Well, because he's not a mind reader. But so, you know, OK, I'm going to tell him this is how I need you to react. And and it worked. And like the fact that he's going to the trouble in a way is showing that he cares. Absolutely. It's weird, we don't usually talk about it this way, but marriage is partly about learning to live with the shortcomings of the person that you're with. I was playing a draft of this uh, story for three of the This American Life producers, and um, I got done it, and then all four of us kind of admitted to each other that in our own marriages, either we've been instructed or we have instructed our spouse the exact same thing that Kristen told Dave. Just listen to me, you know, complain about my day or whatever it is, and then here is what I want you to say. And in those moments, uh, you know, when you go through the motions for the person that you love and say what they want you to say because they specifically said that's what they need, we have all had the experience in our marriages that does the job. That works just fine. David Finch has written a book about all this called The Journal of Best Practices. His wife, Kristen, says that uh, women are constantly asking her for the link to that questionnaire that she gave her husband. Uh, So you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream all of our old shows for absolutely free. Subscribe to our podcast. And we have posted right now a listener survey. It would help us find more listeners like you if we knew who you are. So I hope you'll consider taking a minute to fill it out. Again, that's thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by our boss, Mr. Nori Malatia, who starts his new sexual harassment in the workplace training video this way so listen uh you know what's doing over there you uh you got anything going on you know sexually in your life anything going on love life i'm ira glass back next week with more stories of this american life pri public radio international